Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode eight, and it's an email bag episode. Today, I'm going to answer a few questions about the reemergence of chestnut. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the availability of red oak. We're going to answer some questions about hardwood versus softwoods, and we're going to talk about studs. <laughs> Not me. Studs, like for building stuff, you know, the exciting studs. We're going to talk about white wood, and I think that ought to round it out. There's a lot on the schedule today, so we should probably get started. First, I do want to say thank you to my new patrons over at patreon.com slash lumber update. Thanks to Bob, Josh, Michael, Kit, Lawrence, Christian, Rod, Eric, Paul, Aaron and Tom, thank you all, every one of you, for sponsoring the show and helping keep it going. And I should mention this, I actually launched a new milestone goal over at Patreon, and I'm going to be starting up a YouTube channel where I actually do uh, species kind of testing, um, sea trials, if you will. We're going to focus on one species and just talk about how it works. And I feel like that's going to work better in a video format because I'll actually be able to do some sawing and some planing and things on that particular species of wood. But we're not there yet. We're about 50% of the way to that particular milestone goal. So uh, hopefully we can hit it because I think that could be pretty beneficial to some folks. Anyway, let's look a little bit into some feedback. I got this uh, interesting article from Kyle. Thank you, buddy, for sending that over. And uh, keep making those chairs, man. They're looking fantastic. Kyle's the guy that you love to hate because he retired early and now he's just building chairs. That's what he does all day is build chairs. Yeah, you pretty much suck, Kyle. But good article. He says, I just read this article about reviving the American chestnut with uh, genetic uh, engineering technology. Apparently, there is a little controversy about the subject, needless to say. And it might be interesting to discuss on the show. Well, I agree. See, what's happening is there's long been talk of how do we bring back the American chestnut? And the concern was, is it was so susceptible to the blight that was brought over from Asia at the time that how much effort do we want to put into reseeding and reintroducing it if it's just going to get wiped out again? So there was a lot of looking into how can we genetically engineer it to make it resistant to the blight that took it out and possibly other blights, some of the stuff that's going on right now, like emerald ash borer. Well, there's been a lot of success here, and you'll find a lot of genetically modified species that you know show up in, in labs and, and in um, specific arboretums and things like that. But there's some talk with the success of the, the chestnut that maybe we now start to hand this strain over to forestry services and to companies that are managing concessions and have them start replanting it. And they're very, very close to doing this. They feel very confident about the hardiness of this particular genetically engineered strain of chestnut. But there's a lot of people who are resisting this because you know, well, that ain't natural. <laughs> that ain't right. Um, I'm reminded of, of Dr. Malcolm in Jurassic Park when you uh, re-engineer the dinosaurs and suddenly threw them together with humans after, you know, millions of years being apart. Who knows what's going to happen? I didn't try to do a Jeff Goldblum impression there. I, I hope you guys appreciate that. But th- there is some thought to that. This was a species that was pretty much wiped out And its place has been taken in our forests by oaks and maples primarily, and some cherries and till much, much lesser extent walnuts. The hardy maples and the oaks are the ones that are taking it over. To reintroduce the American chestnut, what is that going to do? 
is this tree hardy enough? Is it now the super tree that's going to now threaten the maples and the oaks? Or is it even going to get a chance because the maples and the oaks are, are grabbing all the sunlight? You know, as we learned in that Rush song, that you can't get any sunlight because the maples and the oaks. Or if they just replanted it in like clear cut areas, what's going to happen? We don't really know because it's been missing from the, uh, the ecosystem for so long. So I can actually see that there is some concern about this. So obviously I think the middle ground would be in some test areas like they've been doing with some of the other genetically modified kind of ornamental trees. There's gotta be some way we can reintroduce this. I don't think we're quite at the spot where we're ready to release it into the hands of industry and start saying, go at it. But hey, it's exciting news that it's possible to do this. I mean, genetic engineering has been around for a while, regardless of what your philosophical beliefs are, there is some hope that maybe we could get back some resources that maybe have been lost. So thank you, Kyle. I'm glad you uh, submitted that. It's an interesting article. James wrote in and he was talking about um, Quercus Rober, uh, American uh, red oak. Well, not American red oak, just red oak. And um, in one of the episodes, I think it was the grading episode, he said, you called it flooring grade in the USA. Over here, he's in um, Great Britain. You mentioned that um, over here it is prized as furniture oak and costs more than American white oak. We have it in Ireland as well. You mentioned not being able to get wide boards over in the US. A while ago, I bought a uh, four by eight by four trailer loads, or excuse me, four eight by four trailer loads stacked four foot high from a local joinery shop. Every board was uh, almost uh, two and a half feet, uh, feet wide and nine feet long with one straight edge. So yes, James, absolutely. It's not that uh, actually, I don't remember calling it flooring grade because honestly, I don't know what flooring grade is. Number two, common tends to be the grade used by flooring. That may be what I was saying. Um, and that is very common in, in red oak to get a lot of number two common being sold to the flooring industry. That doesn't mean that we're not getting FAS and select or every number one common. Red oak is actually very easy to get in FAS quantities because it is a very hardy tree. It grows quite large. Um, we... It's not that we can't get wide sizes or long lengths. It's that the industry, the commercialization, doesn't really have a demand for it. Most of the red oak is being used in flooring or occasionally in, in trim work, millwork type stuff. There's not really a, any large demand for wide panels of red oak. So the mills, when they saw a log, they're sawing it to meet specs. It doesn't make any sense unless you're a small micro mill, unless you're Matt Cremona, to actually do through sawing of these red oak logs because there's no market for it. Now, certainly there's a market for slabs, but it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny market. So if you're sawing you know, a whole bunch of logs in order to fill a 20,000 board foot container, you're going to be sawing into the sizes that are going to be most in demand, which going back to that grading episode, FAS says that you need to have a minimum six inch by eight foot long board. So you're going to pretty much cut most of your boards to be six inches wide and eight feet long in order to meet that grade, because that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck, the best yield from the tree, probably, and, and the most demand for your stock. That doesn't mean people aren't going to be sawing eight inch wide, 10 inch wide, and even 12 inch wide. Certainly stair, our stair treads are 12 inch wide, and there's a lot of red oak used for that. But again, there's a specific product downstream that that log is being sawn for. And this goes for a lot of, of species, both domestic and exotic, they're being sawn into sizes that are in demand commercially, the largest demand for them. So it, when you hear people say, oh, we used to get wide stuff all the time, certainly there's some truth that you can't get the widest wide stuff that you used to get 100 years ago. But the real truth is that 
it's not that it's not there. It's that it's being sawn to a more demanding or a more in-demand spec at the sawmill. And we're not actually seeing those wide boards downstream of the sawmill at the lumber distribution yards and the lumber retail yards. So I think it's great that you have a lot of access to this stuff. You could probably have the same access to it too. If I have a customer that's looking for 24 inch wide red oak, it's a matter of me calling one of our sawmills and saying, saw it to this spec and getting a load that way. So it is certainly possible. So again, uh, great comment. Thanks for writing in James. Josh had um, an interesting point. He said, um, <laughs> for the several billion of your fellow humans who live in subtropical and tropical climate zones, huge swaths of South America, Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, and Oceania, hardwoods are practically never deciduous. Here in Australia, we have thousands of unique hardwood species ranging from rainforest giants to stubby, scrubby desert trees, none of which lose their leaves in winter. This is even true in those parts of Australia that experience colder, snowier climates, um, snowier winters. And he's saying this because when I was talking about, I think it was the lumber terminology episode, might have been episode one, I defined hardwoods as deciduous, as trees that lose their leaves. And he's right, that is a little short-sighted. The, uh, he goes on to say that the well-known exotic hardwoods that make their way to the lumberyards of North America and Europe, like teak, the rosewood, the albergias, the mahoganies, the pterocarpus species, um, paduk, basically, um, nara, wingi, bobinga, all those things, none of these trees are deciduous. Uh, perhaps there's another way to define hardwood that doesn't require going into extreme mechanical detail. Hardwoods are generally broadleaf trees versus needle-bearing softwoods. So yes, defining hardwoods as trees that lose their leaves, yeah, that may not be the, the best way. That's a, that's a short-sighted, temperate zone living human saying the trees that we have here in North America, pretty much they're hardwoods when they lose their leaves. But even that's not true. Um, you'll find uh, several hardwoods that are evergreen. Um, What's the, oh shoot, magnolia. <laughs> I'm staring at one out my window right now. Magnolia is a hardwood and it is evergreen. It does not lose the leaves. So it's certainly not in the tropical zones alone. So very good point, Josh. And I wanted to bring that up because it uh, dovetails nicely into one of the emails that I got from Andrew. So first, thanks for the feedback, guys. I love hearing from you. I love your comments on previous episodes. Keep it coming. This is definitely an ongoing conversation we want to have where um, you know, you've got uh, opposing points of view, maybe you can correct me on some things, and certainly bring my attention to industry news and stuff. That's always a lot of fun. So on this hardwood softwood thing, Andrew writes in and says, what is the difference between softwood and hardwood? Is it simply how soft the material is, or is it more complex than that? Short answer, Andrew, yes. <laughs> it is definitely... Um, Excuse me. Short answer is no. Um, it is definitely not how soft the wood is. Perfect example. Um, poplar is a hardwood. Poplar is quite a bit softer than Douglas fir, which is a softwood. Um, and you're going to find many examples like this. Butternut, uh, basswood, uh, balsa, for God's sake, are all hardwoods. And they're all ridiculously soft. So it really has... I don't want to say nothing to do with the actual hardness of the wood because in general, softwoods are going to be softer than like the large majority of hardwoods. Once you start getting into, especially the tropical woods that have, you know, Janko hardnesses of 1500 PSI and higher, 
you're not going to find a lot of softwoods that have that same hardness. Most of the uh, softwood hardness is going to be about 800 and lower. So yes, and that's probably the the origination of that um, was, hey, this is softer. We'll call it a softwood. But the more complex thing, and if we go back to um, what Josh just said, hardwoods are generally broad-leafed trees. And softwoods are generally needle-bearing trees. Another term, a more botanical term for softwoods would be coniferous trees, where they have pine cones. I, I say pine cones, that's, that's obviously specific to pine, but they have cones, their seeds are actually in the cones, they are coniferous. Um, whereas hardwoods drop their seeds in the form of many different different ways uh, fruit bearing trees and little you know pollination off the, the ends of the leaves there's a wider variety there whereas the softwoods uh, generally are all coniferous but going deeper the internal structure is very different hardwoods have pores softwoods do not have pores so if you look at the end grain of say a piece of red oak you're going to see all those little circles in there red oak is a good example because the pores are quite large and they're not filled with anything they're hollow Red oak, for example, is a ring porous wood. So all those large pores are going to be ordered into nice um, concentric rings. And then the material in between is much denser. And then obviously the pores are, are, are mostly air. Semi-ring porous, you're going to have not quite as ordered rings. And then diffuse porous, where you've got pores kind of scattered evenly throughout the meat of the wood itself. But they have pores and they have medullary rays. Um, you know, the ray fleck we talk about in oak and, and like sycamore and cortisone species, the medullary rays are like the spokes on the wheel that transport waste material and, and food in and out of the interior part of the trunk. Softwoods have an entirely different tracheid structure where there are no pores. And you can look at the end grain of a softwood and you know the most noticeable thing is, hey, there's, there's no little tiny holes here. That's probably one of the biggest things, but it's a major um, structural difference that changes how those trees grow. In a lot of ways, softwoods will grow quite a bit faster than hardwoods because of that internal structure. Now, we certainly don't want to get heavy into the botanical side of things because I'm not a botanist by any means, but <clears throat> you can look at it as many of them are a little bit softer, but you really can't rely upon that entirely. What you want to look at from a woodworking perspective is that pore structure. Because say, for example, um, you want to build a Windsor chair and you're going to be doing a lot of splitting or riving of your material. Well, softwoods don't really split because there's no pore structure for them to kind of unzip along. Certainly, it doesn't mean you can't split softwoods, but they're, they're, those structural things make kind of a big difference. And when we talked about the technical properties of wood a couple episodes ago and how easy or how difficult it is to work, you remember one of the things I brought up was the porosity being a great way to determine how a wood should work. Well, right off the bat, softwoods don't have any pores. So that tells you a little bit about how they may end up working. So again, Let's not get too far down that botanical side of things. Just recognize that if you're looking at a tree in the wild, look for needle bearing trees, look for trees with cones. Those are going to be softwoods. There's the, the basic thing from a woodworking perspective. If they have pores, they're hardwoods. If they don't, they're softwoods. There we go. So while we're on this softwood thing, <clears throat> I actually got an email from Matt and uh, hey, Matt, how are you? Anybody who doesn't know, Matt is the guy that introduced me to Peloton uh, stationary bikes. So thank you, Matt. Um, lost 100 pounds later. Thank you to the Peloton. And it's all Matt's fault. So hey, how are you, buddy? Um, so 
Matt saw something on Instagram and, and I'm sure you guys have seen this. Anytime somebody's doing like restoration work or whatever and they pull a stud out of the wall of an old building and they take a picture of this stud and it's like incredibly tight growth rings. Nine times out of 10, it's a full two inches, sometimes even thicker than that. It actually is a two inch by four inch stud as compared to the much more anemic sizes we have today. And you look at a stud today and there's these super, super wide growth rings. So there was a post on Instagram that had this old growth, um, probably 100, 150 year old stud next to a stud that was just purchased at Home Depot very recently. And there was kind of this conversation that went on about, hey, they don't make them like they used to, that type of thing. And, and Mattress wrote me and said, you know, is this really a legitimate comparison or is it just total BS? When, when people are comparing are they really comparing like for like? Because it doesn't seem like it. So I wanted to, to talk about this a little bit because since we're, we were talking about hardwoods and softwoods, first of all, <clears throat> back in the day, in the days of yore, when we were building homes, you know, certainly there were lumber yards. I work for a lumber yard that helped to, you know, form westward expansion outside of Philadelphia. And we provided building materials, but the forests were so plentiful back then, you were just kind of cutting down what was available and made it in, making it into studs. There wasn't so much specialization of trim work and things like that. Everything went into essentially stick framing back, back then because there were so many houses being built and westward expansion being what it was. You know, there was such a high demand for that. But just as much as you're going to find these like old growth studs in some of the old buildings, look a little bit deeper and you're going to find studs made out of hardwoods. You'll find studs made out of oak. You'll find studs made out of cherry because it was what was there. They were usually cutting down local um, and, and milling into studs locally and building the houses locally. There wasn't a huge amount of transport going on here. And they were just taking what was there. Now, let's be real. Forestry practices 100, 200 years ago weren't that great. There was a lot of just cut it down because it goes on forever. You know, we're never going to run out of trees. You know, yeehaw. And they were just clear cutting like crazy. And whatever they cut down, you know, if you had an order for we need to make, you know, X thousand studs, well, just work your way through the logs and sawing out studs. And that's how you ended up with hardwood studs and how you ended up with these old growth trees that were formed into studs because it wasn't a matter of, oh, here's this tree. This would be better suited for this type of product. And this tree would be better suited for this type of product. So we're going to shunt this wider growth ring tree over to the stud factory and this tighter growth ring over to, to another product factory. No, it just wasn't that way. You cut whatever you had on hand and turned it into whatever the order was. So that was, it was just a different time. We're never going to see that again. Fast forward to today, you know, bad forestry practice of, of your, you know, aside, studs are now specifically grown to be studs. And, and here's the thing, silvicultural, silviculture is the, the science of, of, of forestry management, sustainable forestry management. Silvicultural practices today are actually quite strong. And in many instances, we find that we have a, a net surplus of lumber over demand. And every time lumber is, our trees are felled to produce something, we still end up having more trees left over um, because of good silvicultural practices, because of the fact that in order to create a stud, you don't need a very big tree. And 
you can specifically clear cut a concession area of forest, make a bunch of studs out of it, replant like crazy because those softwoods do grow so fast and softwoods like to grow kind of clumped close together, all reaching up for the sun at the same time. If you were trying to grow um, a tighter growth ring, a straighter bowl, you know, no knot type thing, you would want to have that tree growing inside an established forest with an established canopy so that it would grow much slower and it would reach up for the sunlight as quick as possible so you wouldn't get a lot of branches lower down on the trunk in the bowl of the tree. When you don't really care about that, you clear cut it and have everything grow up fast all at once. And the softwoods kind of sort themselves out. You know, it's very Darwinian there. They, they're all clumped together. And usually about two to five years, softwoods will, will drop all the branches from about the five foot level down. And then they begin to go, you know, accelerate up towards the sun a little bit more. In other words, they make great studs all on their own. And it does better to go ahead and clear cut the whole thing and start over. So the studs now absolutely have wide growth rings. And absolutely, you find that the, the, the concentric rings on the ingrain of a stud are much, much tighter because they're cutting it near the center of the tree because the tree itself wasn't that wide. You know, they got maybe two, four, maybe five studs out of that log because it was specifically grown for that product. And there is a bunch of it growing in the same spot that's going to be available in another 10 years or so. So the difference now from way back then is they were cutting into old growth forests because there was no one there but the Native Americans to, to do this. And that's all there was, was old growth forests, you know, thousands of years of old growth forests. Today, we're cutting our studs from forests that are not nearly as old and they're never going to be old because they're specifically meant to be used for that particular product. Pulp forests are the same way. They don't even get to be 10 years old because it's best to cut them down earlier than that. As you get into forests that are specifically managed for um, lumber producing products, wider producing products, um, northeastern white pine is a good example where that is actually sold more like a hardwood. That's going to be managed in a very different way, very much the same way as a cherry plantation or a walnut plantation, trees grown specifically for their lumber. That would be managed and grown very, very differently than a stud farm or a pulp farm or um, a shingle farm or anything like that. Totally, totally different process and, and, and management system today than it was years ago. So you're never going to see those studs again. Uh, and it doesn't really make sense because if you had a tree that had those tight growth rings like that, there would be a demand for that old growth heart pine. There is a demand for old growth heart pine, whether it be in flooring, whether it be in trim work, whether it be in exterior siding. And that log would then be sawn to that particular purpose. Kind of like I was talking about before with the red oak and not, you know, sawing a bunch of wide stuff because there isn't a commercial demand for that. So to say they don't make them like they used to anymore and bemoan the poor quality of studs and the fact that the structural loads on studs are lower than they used to be because of the wide growth rings, it is what it is, folks. But the alternative in my mind, would be horrible. I'm glad, frankly, that we have companies like Weyerhaeuser who are specifically growing forests just to be used for studs instead of using the good lumber for the studs, right? Why would we want to do that? Let's take the good lumber and use it for better, more highfalutin purposes instead of something that's just going to be covered up by paneling or, or sheetrock. So yeah, um, today, pretty much everything in the softwood world is coming from plantations, 
specifically grown for a specific product. And in many ways, you may find that some of those species, since we talked about genetically engineered species earlier, some of them are going to have some tinkering with the genome a little bit to make them grow a little bit faster. And they are grown in very isolated situations, isolated concessions specifically to that. So I think really, let's keep the construction lumber trade in the construction lumber trade and save that finer quality lumber market for something else. You know, they can, the, the construction guys can sustainably plant and clear cut all the timber they need because that's really the best way to do it. There's really no other possible way to manage the, the extreme demand and the growth rate required for studs. And, and even the wider other sizes of framing lumber. And really, if nature were left to its own devices, we are essentially mimicking nature, how we manage our softwood plantations now. So, hey, there's no better way. It's worked for, you know, millennia. Let's keep it up. So, yeah, don't get caught up in comparing old growth studs and new studs and, and think, oh, what's come of the world? We have such crappy studs now. <laughs> um, next question comes from Matt. He says, um, what is Whitewood? Um, hey, Shannon, loving the new show. I wish it was weekly. Well, funny you should say that, Matt. That's another one of the milestones on Patreon. When we get to a certain point, I will take this show weekly, but uh, we got a ways to go there. For now, it's going to be bi-weekly. Appreciate that, though. Matt says, um, you make me very smart when talking about wood and its properties. I've been following your stuff for years now, since uh, since I was 18 or so. Good Lord, I've warped this poor kid's mind. Uh, all the way through the wood talk, the Renaissance woodworker, and someone who is pretty good at identifying lumber species, I have a question. What is the deal with whitewood? I don't know if he's doing a Jerry Seinfeld voice there or not, but what's the deal with whitewood sold at Home Depot? In my local store, there are three different species of building grade two by fours, Douglas fir, spruce, and whitewood. It is the cheapest two by four in the store as well. Most of the furring strips and other building two by stock is also this whitewood nonsense. Is that an actual species or is it just a term for whatever the hell gets thrown into the pile of the mill? It doesn't seem to be white pine. It seems to be closer to the spruce side of things. If it helps, I reside in Southern Rhode Island, so no unpressure treated Southern yellow pine sold as building material there. Thanks, hope to hear your answer soon. It's a good question, Matt. What's interesting in the instance of Home Depot and Lowe's and, and Menards and, and large um, 84 lumber and things like that, Whitewood is kind of what happened to be in the mill. And it's a very regional, locally sourced thing. So as he points out, he's in Rhode Island. So you're not seeing any southern yellow pine. Here in Maryland, I don't see southern yellow pine either. Pressure treated lumber is pretty much all southern yellow pine. But the untreated stuff, no, we don't see it either. We get the hem slash fur, hem fur. Um, in in our in our two by material occasionally we do get some douglas fir like four by fours and such because again those plantations are grown specifically to produce four by fours douglas fir plantations do particularly well for that particular size and how they grow and the and the structural strength of douglas fir one of the reasons doug fir is used for so much timber framing is its structural properties so when you're building, um, wanting a four by four doug fir is a great species for that so even though Doug Fir comes from a very, very long way away from me here in Maryland, coming from the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia, structurally, that's the best species for it. So we do get it shipped all the way out here. But for the two-by stuff, the regular framing lumber, that's just whatever you can get locally. Now, 
what we get a lot locally in, in my area um, and in Matt's area is northeastern white pine. But northeastern white pine, as I said earlier, is treated more like a hardwood. Um, left to its own devices, it can be a really beautiful, very close-grained, fine-grained, gorgeous pine. And there is a strong demand for it in siding purposes for wider boards, clear vertical grain white pine, and certainly in um, the furniture trade and, and, and more, quote, refined trades than just framing lumber. So northeastern white pine, nine times out of 10, is relegated to something more highfalutin than just plain old framing lumber. And that's where that hem fur type thing comes in. What's interesting is technically white wood is a common name for tulip poplar. So the poor poplar, which I love poplar, love working with poplar. It's a great, you know, soft hardwood. That's a confusing statement right there. It's a very, very nice, soft hardwood, you know, kind of a tall, short, fat, skinny guy, soft hardwood. Um, Poplar is is also known as white wood. So depending on where you are in the world, actually, I'm pretty sure in Great Britain, white wood, if you saw white wood on the rack, you would actually be buying tulip poplar. Not so much here in the States because you can go to, you know, Home Depot and they've got poplar back in the hardwood section and yet they have white wood through all the the framing stuff. It's just become a generic term. Um, Obviously, it is white in in color, whitish in color. So they just, rather than doing hem fir, spruce pine fir, um, Douglas fir, any of that stuff, because there can be any number of species, any number of, of species in the, the, the pinus genus as well that all get rolled into that. Moreover, these enormous plants that, that make these this framing lumber, and you know, some of these things can be seen from outer space. They're so huge, turning out sawing logs, softwood logs into framing lumber, there isn't any kind of sorting process for this. So it could be a spruce tree here and a hemlock tree here and a fir tree here, and it's just kind of all thrown together and you get that SPF, spruce pine fir or hem fir type product, which just gets known as white wood. Now, I do believe there is some grading differences in here. Now, I haven't talked about softwood grading before. I may never talk about softwood grading because it is an evil, evil rabbit hole to go down There's lots of ifs and buts, and on Tuesday it's this, and on Wednesday's full moon it's this grade. Lots of craziness in there. But I'm pretty certain that whitewood does have a grade um, uh, connotation to it, which is why, as you said, it tends to be the cheapest stuff in in the bunch. So um, there could be some growth ring things there and number of knots and things in, in, in all of that. So don't quote me on that. I'd have to look into that. And one of these days, I suppose I should do a software grading episode, but uh, I don't have the patience for that right now. So, wow, (laughs) we just covered a lot in a very fast amount of time. And for those folks who have said, um, I talk too fast, I'm sorry. I probably didn't do any better in this particular episode. (laughs) I will try to uh, meter my pace a little bit more, but I get excited. I get excited and I talk fast. So anyway, let me just throw that plug out one more time. Um, Patreon.com slash lumber update. I appreciate everybody who is sponsoring the show and helping to uh, keep this going and frankly make it worthwhile. I am pretty excited about the idea of launching this YouTube channel. I think that over time it could end up becoming a great resource. 
nine times out of 10, when I get an email from someone, it's, what do you know about this species of wood? How does this species of wood work? How does this species compare to that species? And, you know, in a previous episode, I talked about that comparing different species, but wouldn't it be cool to be able to turn to a channel on YouTube and have 30, 40, 50, 100 species highlighted with, you know, me at the bench actually working with them and talking about how they work and why and and the actual physical properties of it. So I'm hopeful. We'll see if we can get there. We've got a little ways to go. So if you were at all interested in that um, incarnation of that new series on YouTube, then please get over to patreon.com slash lumber update and sponsor the show. Certainly appreciate it. And speaking of updates, there is now a new subscribe via email feature on lumberupdate.com. So those of you who have subscribed to this in your favorite podcatcher app, you're already getting these episodes. Uh, if you are a, patri- uh, a patron on Patreon, I am posting the episodes in the feed there as well. And you're probably getting a notification of that depending upon your notification settings. But if you just want to get an email every time a new episode comes out, Go over to lumberupdate.com. On the right-hand sidebar, you'll see a subscribe to the uh, get every new episode in your inbox. So just a new feature there. So that's it for me, folks. Thanks for tuning in and go buy some wood.